thank the worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. That follows Mark chapter 5 and it precedes Mark chapter 7. And I have a confession and an observation. Confession. I have a really hard time preaching miracles. And observation, I think that if we're being completely honest, we have a hard time believing them. The Christian faith is so unique because there's this strain that you see taking place in believers here, there, and everywhere. There are... We are united by the death and resurrection of Jesus, something that Christian people believe. We trust. We, if you do not believe that Jesus is God, crucified and resurrected from the dead, you're not a Christian. You, you can't call yourself a Christian. But when we talk about miraculous things taking place in the Scriptures, whether it's feeding 5,000 like Jared walked through last week, or feeding 4,000 that I'll walk through in a couple of weeks, I get a, a lower attendance for that buffet. Or stories like today where we talk about Jesus walking on water. We can do damage to the text by uh, our inadvertent misunderstanding. There are some strains of the Christian faith. When I say strains, I mean uh, denominations. Where there is an overemphasis, an over-spiritualization on the passage. There's an over-spiritualization of what happens there. That Jesus calms a storm and that necessarily means that he, the intent of that passage is to calm storms in your life. And that might be a secondary or a tertiary application, but the, the declaration there is not that he would calm storms in your life. It's that Jesus is the only one who can calm storms because he's God. And then there's probably us, the other side of the coin, where we land in the camp where we just over-rationalize these passages. Where we say, this is something that happened then, and I'm glad that it happened then, but I want to make sure that I get what's there, and I extrapolate the truth from that, and that I figure out what I'm supposed to do with this. We see this in Christianity regularly. Where God did something miraculous. We should be shocked when we read miracles. If we are not shocked, we're in a unique place. I'm going to use terrible grammar for just a moment. Advertently, as opposed to inadvertently, which I do regularly. It should never not shock us that a man walked on water. It should cause us to ask the dominant question of the book of Mark. The dominant question of Mark is very simple. It is four words. Who is this man? Who is this man that is doing the things that Jesus happens to do? Now, if you're in Mark chapter 6, our primary text for today begins in verse 45. However, to find ourselves in the place of the text, we have to go back to verse 30. Maybe you weren't with us and that's okay. Jesus has this group of people called disciples. In Mark chapter 6, he sends the disciples out to do the ministry of Jesus. To heal the sick, to to proclaim that God's favor is in their midst, to declare that Jesus is who he says that he is. And as he sends these men, when they come back to him, all in the while, all the while, John the Baptist, we're told the story of how he's beheaded in the middle of that. When they come back to Jesus, he has something for them. He has told the disciples who have just returned from obeying him and doing what he has asked them to do and he has instructed them to do, let's go to the middle of nowhere and rest. 
I don't know if you rest in the middle of nowhere. I know that's a really popular thing around here. I have a perfectly good home, but let's get a smaller version of that perfectly good home and put it on wheels and drive to the middle of nowhere and rest. Does it matter if there are alligators around us? No, we'll just rest amongst the alligators. We are rest people. In this passage, Jesus is taking them to the middle of nowhere to rest. Verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. The apostles gathered around Jesus. They reported to him all that he all they had done, all they had taught. Can you just imagine the, the, what's taking place in these men's hearts as they are saying to Jesus, I told the demon to leave, and the weirdest thing happened, the demon left. I told the person to get better, and do you know what they did? They got better. Celebration. Also exhaustion, because when you do awesome things, it can be exhausting. In a few weeks, we're going to have Faith and Family Night with the Houston Astros, just for us. Us, the Astros, Micah Tyler. That's going to be an incredibly fun event. Make sure you sign up for that. Take your family to Faith and Family Night, because we're a people of faith and we're a church family. Let's go. But when you come home that night, you're going to be exhausted. The disciples are exhausted, so Jesus says, let's go to the middle of nowhere and let's rest. Let's take a retreat. I did a retreat in New Hampshire last weekend. It has not thawed there yet. It was around 56 degrees at the highest, which I guess is nice. But the water is still frozen over. You see chunks of ice. All of these kids, teenagers, and adults come together in New Hampshire to retreat, to rest. And the way they have chosen to rest is to plunge themselves into that water. It's called the polar plunge. They have to sign waivers for such. And for me, when I was a kid, I wanted to go rest. They... We love to consider rest, things that cause us to relax, very much like us going to Faith and Family Night. My dad wanted to take me to a Little League baseball game. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, home of the Chattanooga Lookouts. Fantastic logo. Make sure to order a hat. And we're going to go rest there. Just enjoy the baseball game. Eat a hot dog. Drink a cola. It is Little League Appreciation Night, my dad says. So we all, he makes sure that I wear my uniform. I almost said costume. I've got to be careful. I still don't understand baseball. I put on my uniform. I've got my glove. I'm cleated up. We're on our way to the stadium. There's going to be no one there because it's a Tuesday night. The reason they do theme nights is because people don't go to those games. While we're at the theme night, I'm looking around, and this crowd's a little different than any crowd that I ever expected to see. I played for this team called the East Lake Lions. Our jerseys were purple and gold. Dad had looked at the calendar for the lookouts, our, our minor league team, wearing our, we're all going to wear our uniform. And as I'm looking around, no one else is wearing a baseball uniform. We had this rough crowd that was there, a crowd that was hard to understand. This, this crowd of, of, of mullets on, at the first phase of mullet popularity. Rough-looking crowd. My dad had looked at the calendar wrong, and as a po- rather than going to Little League or Appreciation Night where there would be no one there, we were at the second annual Chattanooga Badman Contest where there were going to be literal fist fights in the middle of the field. And I'm just walking around with my nachos and my baseball glove this rough crowd. If you don't know what a bad man contest is, in the words of King James, the bad man contest begat UFC. This ruckusy crowd. 
No rest. There's no rest for the disciples in this passage. When they get to where they are, they're on their way and a crowd is waiting for them because everyone has been hearing that this Jesus is marvelous. They have been hearing that this Jesus does things that no one else has ever done. They have heard that this Jesus heals, that this Jesus says words they've never heard before, that this Jesus speaks with a power unlike any other speaker they've ever encountered. They think that Jesus is awesome and they want to experience Jesus. And the disciples who are told they're going to rest in the passage that Jared walked us through last week don't get any rest at all. They're just there. This crowd has arrived in this desolate place. And as Jared walked us through last week, feeds them in private, handing the food to the disciples to go to the crowd. This rough crowd wants to make Jesus their king. When they want to make him their king, he confronts it. And he says to them, according to John, a different gospel, but same story. He says to them, they just want to make me the king because I give them bread. I don't just give bread, I am the bread. He he tells the disciples to get in the boat and go. This rough crowd wants him to be king. Jesus tells this crowd, leave. That's not what this is about. So you get to that point in Mark chapter 6. And we consider the feeding of the, of the 5,000, the 15,000, the 20,000, whatever number you want to attach to that crowd that happened to be there. And it says in verse 45, immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he got rid of the crowd, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Jesus to this point in the text, we have Jesus going to the mountain and everyone is wondering the exact same question that we asked earlier. Who exactly is this man? What is this man here for? What does this man do? And there are all types of rumblings and rumors as to who this man may happen to be. Maybe he's Elijah or or maybe he's Moses come back. What if he's John the Baptist? Who is this man? And Jesus goes to the mountaintop, very much like Elijah and Moses, stands on the mountaintop, prays on the mountaintop. He goes and he has done something that you may see Elijah or Moses do in the Old Testament. And well into the night, the boat says in verse 47, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. It doesn't seem as if Jesus has thought through this. I'm going to put the disciples in the boat and they're going to leave me behind. They're going into a headwind, according to one observer of the text. As they go into this headwind, they can't make hide nor hair of this trip. They cannot push forward. They cannot get where they are supposed to be going. They are just rowing into a wall. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Unlike the other storm that we see in the Scriptures. The Scripture we see in Mark chapter 4 is one that's trying to tear the boat apart. The wind's whistling and whipping from everywhere, but this is a wind directly in their faces. We love cause and effect. I mean, they're rowing. They're trying to move. And they are. if we think about it for just a moment, 
they're not just trying to row, they're trying to do what Jesus told them to do exactly. We love cause and effect. Proverbs are helpful. If you've ever read through the Proverbs in the Old Testament, they are very beneficial to us. They are even numbered in a way where we can read one every day of the month. I'm not sure if that was intentional, but lots of people wrote in with it. And the idea behind many of them, they're guidelines. If you do this, then this is going to happen. And I think that we can put ourselves in a place where, where those guidelines, as beneficial as they are, we miss that there are sometimes realities where we do something and it does not happen. There are generalizations that are not always the rule. And, and here the disciples are being obedient to Jesus. They're not in this situation because of misbehavior. They've done nothing wrong. They've listened to Him. And I would assume if you have been a Christian for any length of time whatsoever, there have been moments for you where you were attempting to obey Jesus and it did not seem as if that was working out great. Maybe your life is super peachy. Mine isn't all the time. I'm going to be obedient to Jesus, do what Jesus would have me to do, be what Jesus would have me to be, and everything is going to work out okay because after all, that's cause and effect. They've not done anything wrong. They're all being obedient. Even Judas. He's put the money bag away. He's rowing himself. They've already been through one storm and here's another one. And this situation seems even worse. Why would this situation seem worse? How is this worse than the storm that was whipping around them? At the first storm, he's asleep in the boat. This time they don't have that luxury. This time, they are alone. And they are in this predicament because of their obedience. C.S. Lewis wrote those cool Narnia movies. Says this, Life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but peace in difficulties. The wind is against them. They can make absolutely nothing of it. They are rowing. They are straining. They are attempting to see progress. And there is no progress to be seen. Very early in the morning, he came toward them. Walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. When you read something like that, do you ever think to yourself, what is the goal of this? What would God have us to see from this? What would God have us to hear from this? Because I have observed that many of us can lean into the idea of this being a story that we, we can rationalize or maybe a story that we over-spiritualize, we can easily dismiss something like this as a holy form of entertainment, like vid-angel. This is not a trip to the movies for us to suspend our belief. God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to do more. He wants us to change our hearts. 
So you're going to see two things unfold in the passage as we move forward. The first is you're going to see, very simply, Jesus is going to reveal himself. And he doesn't just reveal himself smallly, he reveals himself fully. Water is a big deal in the Bible. It's also a big deal on earth. In the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, water is mentioned more than anything in that creation account. It's mentioned ten times in, in there. It is the dominant element of God's creation as far as the planet is concerned. Our, our planet, and maybe you know better math than me, but according to uh, Google, which answers all of our questions, it's 70-75% of the Earth's surface is covered by water. 97% of all water is contained in the oceans. Do you know what that makes it? Undrinkable. Only 3% of Earth's water can be used for drinking, and three-fourths of that 3%, I'm not a mathematician, nor do I... Uh, tell you that I am. Three-fourths of that 3% drinkable water, it's in frozen polar ice caps. Water's a big deal in the scriptures, and it's a big deal for us. It is a natural resource for us. But God is interacting with the waters throughout much of the Old Testament. God moves the waters around in the book of Genesis, but in Exodus, you have God intervening in the most unique way. There is a man named Moses that we have already mentioned. Moses delivers the children of Israel and when he delivers them from Egyptian captivity, they are met with water. And Moses, by the power of God, the water parts and they walk on dry ground, not sloshy ground, not muddy ground. They walk across. God does a water miracle there. In the book of Joshua, Joshua tells the same story in a smaller way because Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land and they cross the Jordan River. Yet again, walking on dry ground. In the book of 1 Kings, you have Elijah, who I mentioned earlier. He asked God to light up an altar. What we may not know is there's been a drought for 40 days. And when he calls down the lightning to light the altar, rain pours, which they have not seen. God intervening miraculously through water. When you look on the mountain, you can see that Jesus looks like Elijah or Moses or John the Baptist. But right here in the passage, he's walking on water, declaring to us, I'm much more than any of that. I'm God himself. He walks on the water because he's Yahweh. There's a passage in the book of Job where it says this about God. He alone stretches out the heavens. He treads on the waves of the sea. He makes the stars, the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the southern sky. This God does great, and He does unsearchable things. Wonders without number. If, I, if He passed by me, I would not see Him. If he went by, I would not recognize him. So, so much of the Old Testament story is telling us about God's miraculous interaction with water. Would we align our hearts with what God has said about himself in his word? Crawford Lawrence 
retired pastor from the Atlanta area, says this, your whole life is to be organized around these two things, the character of God and the content of Scripture. How does God work? God works in the way God chooses to work, and he declares himself to be God in what seem to be unbelievable situations. Now, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. Because they all saw him and they were terrified. However close Jesus is, when they look, it's mortifying. Do you know why it was mortifying? Because people don't walk on water. Yet right here, everywhere Jesus chooses to step, the chaos of that storm stops being chaotic. And he walks there. And he says to them, Have courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. And then he gets into the boat and the wind ceases. Uh, They were completely astounded, as any of us would be. Because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Really, right here is the the hanging text. The reason they do not recognize that God is walking on water is because they did not recognize when God made food from nothing. He took a great value charcuterie board and fed 20,000 people. Think about all they've watched Jesus do, yet they don't recognize him. They have seen sick people miraculously healed. Why? Because Jesus undoes all that leads to death and he cares for you. They have watched him cast out demons because he alone tells darkness to flee. And he cares enough to do so. They have seen him calm a storm with a spoken word because he controls the wind and the waves. They have watched him heal a sick woman and tell disease to leave. They have told him, they have seen as he has resurrected a dead girl telling death to go to hell. Jesus has been doing amazing things throughout the whole of the passage. They have watched him take five loaves and two fish and he, as he declares that he controls resources and that he cares enough to feed those who are in need. And right here, as they are in this boat, terrified, attempting to be obedient in the face of what seems to be an insurmountable obstacle, he meets them in their need. And they don't know him The God who reigns over all consistently meets their needs and is with them in their struggle. 
when you run through those stories of the Old Testament, it's so interesting to consider what's taking place as Mark more than likely is writing down the words of Peter who has a a really reliable understanding of the Old Testament. They see Jesus in the distance. When you look into the story of Moses, he just gets a glimpse of God. You hide in that rock and watch as I pass by. Elijah only gets a whisper. They are getting to see God in the flesh step into a boat from the middle of a raging storm. And that's not enough. We regularly think things like, this would be so much easier, this whole faith, this whole belief in Jesus, if I had just been there. I've thought it, you know, it's, I understand that what God did this 2,000 years ago, but you know what would have been amazing if I could have watched him do the things that it tells me that he does. These men did, and they did not believe. They have seen Jesus intervene in the hardships and difficulties of everyday life, and they don't believe. What is Jesus doing here as he shows that he cares for them? And what can we learn from it? Intervention is amazing and helpful. But resurrection? It's essential. And as you look to this text, you see Jesus doing things that they should be able to acknowledge only God can do and they don't see Him. What does He need to do? If he's healed the sick people and he has told demons to leave and he has undone death and made sick girls better and calmed storm after storm, what does he need to do? Does he need to come back from death? Paul points out to us in Romans 2. That is the kindness of God, the tolerance of God, and the patience of God that lead us to repentance. The very witness of Jesus in this passage, taking these men to a place where they could see and know that they have experienced God in the flesh, sitting with them in a boat, but going even further, being alone by himself on a cross so that they can have eternal hope. When God kindly, patiently, and tolerantly meets us at the cross, we are reminded that He controls all things and that rebellion deserves death and separation. Mine and yours, our rebellion deserves that. But we matter so much that God takes that death upon Himself. Because God's the only one who can. God's the only one who can do miraculous things with our death. It is only with Jesus that we are able to walk on the diff- walk in the difficulties and hardships of this life. And in all honesty, you may feel as if you're rowing into the wind right now. But 
Would you be encouraged if you have a relationship with Christ to know and believe and trust that He says He's with you and if He says He's with you, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. That He's with you. Now 53, it gets into this unique place where they've crossed over. When they'd crossed over, they came to the shore at Gennesaret and they anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized Him. They see Jesus and they know that Jesus has been preaching, teaching, and healing and they want to be preached to and taught to and healed. Really, they just want to be healed and they would like to get a show. They hurried through that region. They began to carry sick people on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went into villages, towns, or in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and they begged him that he might just touch, just touch the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. People who viewed the idea of interacting with Jesus as a small chance of something, which is always better than the absolute chance of nothing. Church family, how are we reaching out and asking Jesus to meet with us right now? What are we trusting about Jesus? What are we believing about Jesus? What are we expecting of Jesus? Are we... Are we trusting in the fact that he's with us in hardship, he's with us in difficulty, that he meets us in these places? Because the world can be hard, and life can be difficult, and things can be heavy, and we don't know the answers, and we don't know why we don't know the answers, and many of the times we can't even admit that we don't know the answers. Will we be people who turn to him Here's what I want to do right now. I invite you to bow your head. And I, I'm going to ask for any of my life group leaders just to be aware. With heads bowed in the room, I've had a couple people just share the, of hardships and struggles that they're walking through right now. Sick, grandbabies, hard things they're going through at work. If that's you, if you're in one of those places... With my life group leaders aware, and just maybe anyone else who's been around for a while, it's part of our faith family. If you're here and you're going through something really, really hard, really difficult right now, and you just need someone to pray over you, and you need to be reminded of the witness of Jesus, could you lift your hand, and we're going we're gonna to have a time as we respond where we move and pray over one another. If your hand is up, can we, can we do that? Can we move toward these people whose hands are up? You may, may not even know a person's name. That's okay. Just ask God to, to meet them in this. we continue in this time of prayer if you need me I'm in my back right hand side of the room Jesus remind us that you're with us